Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Connections and Directions, our University of Michigan Civil and Environmental Engineering podcast. My name is Michelle Santillian, and I am the CEE Marketing Communications Specialist and host of this series. During our podcasts, we are featuring members of our CEE community and how their work reflects our mission of engineers in service to society. We will be highlighting our strategic directions and our commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion. CEE's five strategic directions are human habitat experience, shaping resource flows, adaptation, automation, and smart infrastructure finance. Our guest for this podcast is Associate Professor Herrick Clack. Professor Clack has a Bachelor of Science degree in Aeronautical and Astronautical Engineering from MIT and Master's and Ph.D. degrees in Mechanical Engineering from the University of California, Berkeley. Professor Clack's research focuses on reducing the environmental and health impacts of a variety of airborne aerosols. Professor Clack, thank you for joining us today. It's my pleasure, Michelle. Please share with our listeners some details about your research area and goals and how they align with CEE's strategic directions and our mission of engineers in service to society. And so what we do in our lab is we're trying to understand, you know, the behavior of these aerosols as they age, as they undergo chemical transformation in the atmosphere. Uh, or as a result of uh, emission from a combustion process. And we are very interested in designing technologies to abate their emission, either to reduce uh, the physical emission of the aerosol from its source or to blunt or thwart its potential health impact. And so those are two somewhat different but ultimately related uh, methods for seeding for achieving the same objective, which is to uh, minimize the impact on uh, human health and the environment of the aerosols uh, that get emitted to the to the atmosphere. Do you think that over the past uh, two and a half to three years, as you mentioned, because of COVID, that your area of research has accelerated and that perhaps you've learned um, very quickly uh, how to respond to, to this particular issue, but also you can use this to serve you in the future? Absolutely. So the last three years has been uh, a whirlwind uh, for all of us, of course, but it's been a particular whirlwind for uh, myself, those in my group, and uh, I, I even have a startup company. And so through all three of those uh, efforts, it's been a lot of activity in the last uh, last three years. And, you know, just, just to set the, you know, just to set the kind of stage for what we've been through, uh, you know, folks may not remember that at the start of the pandemic, uh, the medical and public health communities were maintaining a long-standing belief that um, uh, infectious diseases, especially infectious viral diseases, uh, largely uh, were uh, unlikely to be transmitted in the air. There, there are some exceptions. So uh, measles is an exception. Of, you know, there's, it is understood and accepted that measles can be transmitted through the air. And same thing with uh, tuberculosis. But 
for things like influenza and certainly for, you know, a novel coronavirus like SARS-CoV-2, at the start of the pandemic, uh, the, the advice given by medical professionals was wash your hands, cover your cough, uh, things like that. And so for those of us who deal with aerosols and those of us who deal specifically with bioaerosols, this was a very challenging time because we were uh, we were spending a lot of effort uh, trying to get our voices heard, trying to get our expertise appreciated by those who had the larger megaphone of here's how we respond to the pandemic. And so I think it's important to recognize that we went from um, a, a, a context where we have this infectious disease and we have very, have very little um, protections against it. This was at the beginning, 2019, 2020, beginning of the pandemic. And, you know, the, the protective advice that was being given was one that essentially dismissed what ultimately ended up being the primary route of transmission which is through the air. And so it's been very, very, very <laughs> um, uh, much an active period for those in, in, in the bioaerosol community. And fortunately, um, you know, after I think about eight or nine months, there, there was a shift. Both uh, the U.S. CDC and the World Health Organization both changed their guidance, I think, in late summer, early fall of 2020 to acknowledge the importance of airborne transmission. And so that opened the door to things like, well, what, you know, what does it mean to, to, to have a pollutant that's not emitted from a smokestack of a factory or the tailpipe of a truck, but is emitted from, you know, your roommate sitting across the dining room table from you or something like that, or emitted from a parent that is cuddling a child. That's, that's a very, very, very different air quality regime, a very, very different context in which to think about how you provide protection. So it's been very exciting, to be sure, um, but it's also uh, important, I think, to just remember that we weren't always this aware of what an aerosol is. We weren't always this appreciative of the challenge of an aerosol pollutant that is not emitted from an industrial process, but is emitted from humans. And I'll just, I'll just make one, one additional point. Um, you know, it, it's actually added um, kind of irony or surrealism for me because before the pandemic, we were still doing uh, research in the area of uh, airborne pathogen control and mitigation. But because before the pandemic, there really wasn't much traction uh, in the area of human diseases, most of the work that we were doing was focused on animal agriculture. So before the pandemic, 2015, 2016, 2017, um, most of the appreciation for what we were doing came from pig farmers and chicken farmers because whereas, you know, medical professionals, public health professionals at that time generally did not see influenza or COVID as being a threat through the air, pig farms and chicken farms absolutely understood that their livestock were at risk from uh, airborne diseases, airborne infectious diseases that could be transmitted into their barns through their ventilation air. So it's, it's, it's just very poignant for me that, you know, the, ultimately the appreciation for what we do started out not 
in 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 saving humanity, but in saving uh, you know uh, pigs and chickens. How specifically um, do you bring strategic directions into your research and your teaching? And what strategic direction or directions would you say most applies in your situation? Yeah, so the work that I do is primarily uh, relating to air quality, uh, both indoor air and outdoor air. And uh, in general, as a department, we've we've put that into the um, uh human habitat um, strategic direction. And so it's uh, optimizing uh, the design of places where humans will, will live. And that includes both, you know, uh, terrestrially on Earth as well as even, you know, space exploration. And so, um, you know, uh, designing, uh, optimizing, measuring, characterizing air quality in these spaces has always been important. Uh, traditionally, those measurements uh, and those air quality standards have been based on chemical air contaminants. And, you know, as the last three years has shown, there, there is a risk now uh, that we have a new appreciation for from biological air contaminants. And there are no standards for that um, for a number of reasons, uh, not the least being that, by you know, each one of us could be a source of a biological air contaminant. So... Uh, how do you regulate another human being, right? So there, we, there's a need for uh, a reconsideration of how we approach air quality when uh, regulation is likely not going to be a solution, but the outcomes of exposure can be quite severe, as we saw from, from the COVID pandemic. Um, in terms of, um, was the other part of the question, uh, in the classroom? Yes, in the classroom also. Yes, so uh, I teach uh, primarily two courses. One is uh, undergraduate thermodynamics, and the other is a graduate course in air quality engineering. Uh, undergraduate thermodynamics is, uh, you know, not 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 a favorite course of students, even outside of our department. You talk to mechanical engineers, chemical engineers, uh, thermo. You could talk to someone, a layperson. Uh, who, who's never taken a thermo course and they hear things about thermo. But uh, I try and bring in um, uh, everyday examples of thermodynamic principles. And, you know, there are times when uh, my just being in the classroom is can be an element uh, where I can highlight DEI. So, for example, there's a principle in thermodynamics uh, called a phase diagram. And... Oftentimes, it's hard for students to, uh, even when they've seen an image of a phase diagram, it's hard for them to understand how to use it and how to, um, how, how to incorporate it into a thermodynamic analysis. And one of, the, one, of the, one of the strategies for being successful at that is first knowing where you are on the phase diagram. So you can't, the, the analogy would be like using an old-fashioned map. You can't f use a map to get somewhere unless you can find where you currently are on that map. And so, you know, I could easily uh, just go with that analogy uh, in teaching about using a phase diagram. But uh, I actually incorporate uh, part of my identity. I talk about my husband, who has a very poor sense of direction. And I talk about how uh, before, you know, uh, Google Maps and smartphones, 
I would get calls from him saying, I'm lost, help me get home. And I would ask him, well, where are you? And he would say, I don't know. And, and the frustration was, I, I absolutely can't help you unless I know where you are. And so even, and I remember when I first started doing that, maybe seven or eight years ago uh, at, here at Michigan, I remember doing it consciously. And every year, you know, there'd be a little titter a little twitter in the classroom when i did it and it's interesting to see now that that doesn't happen anymore right so i can make that analogy i can you know refer to my husband and there's no reaction from the students at all and so uh i appreciate that um so now maybe i have to find another way <laughs> to incorporate uh, dei into the course uh in the graduate course it's a little easier uh partly because Things like uh, awareness of environmental justice issues means that students already come to the course thinking about um, neighborhoods uh, predominantly populated by uh, either low-income families or black and brown families, and those neighborhoods disproportionately tend to be the places where uh, heavy industry is placed, where heavy polluters are placed. Uh, and then that a that added environmental burden on those neighborhoods just because they happen to be low income or or some other circumstances. So we have conversations about that, especially, again, in the graduate course. You, we have the flexibility. I have the flexibility of having students do um, term projects. And we talk about, OK, well, you know, you certainly could do for air quality. You could do a term project where you design this air pollution control device, but you could also do a term project where you examine an environmental justice issue involving air pollution around, let's say, the Marathon Refinery in Southwest Detroit, or you could do an environmental justice issue around like Cancer Alley in, in, in Louisiana along the Mississippi River. And so it's much easier in an advanced course where uh, you have moved beyond fundamental principles, and now you're going into applications, you're going into risk analysis, you're going into the actual implications of what uh, what environmental exposures have, uh, and you can bring in these real-world scenarios. So it's, it's much easier in a graduate course than it is an undergraduate course. Uh -huh. And then likewise, how does that um, influence some of your direct research when you're looking at the DEI issues, as you mentioned, with environmental justice and, and the issues that that involves? Yeah, so most of my research uh, now has been, uh, in the in, you know, last five or ten years has been on uh, bioaerosols or airborne pathogens. Uh, but before that, um, I, uh, my research was focused on uh, airborne toxic metals, so things like mercury emitted from burning coal and things like that. And so there was a very you know, direct tie between uh, the work that I was doing to reduce the amount of mercury emitted from these uh, power plants and where that mercury might end up um, depositing in a watershed, being taken up by vegetation and fish, and then ultimately being eaten by humans. So um, anytime, almost anytime, and, you know, that, you know, whether it's an environmental engineering course or environmental engineering research or mechanical engineering research, I think, you know, almost anytime you're dealing with, um, you know, a residual or you're dealing with uh, some, um, some byproduct of a, of a process, that is who, who's, whose release is either uncontrolled or not controlled enough, you have these issues. And so uh, it's been uh, taking into account where these exposures occur, whether it's talking about um, 
um, toxic metals or whether it's talking about pathogens, where these exposures occur, that's been a part of uh, my research, or at least a, an element of how we think about our research for, for quite a while. Um, it isn't the core of what we do. So there are researchers who, for example, measure exposures to toxic metals around certain sources of, you know, we're more, uh, I would say maybe in the trenches. We're trying to design the technologies that prevent the release of those pollutants in the first place, as opposed to measuring the, the concentration and the ultimate exposure of the pollutant once it gets out into the environment. So we're trying to prevent the exposure altogether. Okay, that sounds great. Is there anything else that you would like to add? Yeah, I mean, it's it's been, uh, you know, a, a really interesting transition for me. Uh, you know, the, the core of my research has always been around aerosols. Initially, it started out as aerosols uh, produced from combustion, and now more recently, it's it's biological aerosols, viruses, and bacteria. But to me, I, I you know, the, the takeaway message is, you know, once you have kind of a core set of 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 skills, a core um, um, understanding, a core area of engineering that you're really quite proficient at, you can take that and you can apply it to a lot of different needs, right? So, you know, I went from coal combustion to um, COVID, uh, and and it was it was more or less seamless, right? They're very different things, but the aerosol principles are still the same. So I would encourage students to, when they are looking at, you know, courses to take or careers to pursue or majors, you know, try and find or try and identify that thing that they think likely will be their core skill set. And then wherever and whatever department they happen to be in, try and build that up. It doesn't have to be environmental engineering that is looking at, you know, biological aerosols, viruses, and bacteria. It could be mechanical engineers, chemical engineers, aerosol scientists, public health researchers, epidemiologists. It doesn't matter as long as you're good at what you do and that core skill set. That's a great way to end on the interview. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our podcast conversation. For more information about CEE at Michigan, please visit our website at cee.umich.edu. You can also reach our YouTube channel and Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn pages from our website.